A few weeks ago, I gave a study in which we noticed the story of Jephthah, who was definitely, I believe, one of the lesser-known uh, characters of the Bible. But he is listed among the heroes of faith in what we sometimes call the Faith Hall of Fame in, in Hebrews the 11th chapter, particularly uh, in verse 32. And I don't want to recap that whole lesson, but in case you've forgotten or if you weren't here that day, Jephthah's story is, is found in the book of Judges, chapters 11 and 12. And there we find Israel on the verge of being attacked by the Ammonites. And as we see God doing time and time again throughout this book of Judges, he raised up for them a hero known as a judge, to rescue them. This time it was a man by the name of Jephthah. Ironically, Jephthah had been chased away from home by his brethren because he was the son of a prostitute, but now the elders of his homeland, Gilead, asked him to come back home and help lead them in the fight against the Ammonites. And so Jephthah agreed on the condition that if God were to give him victory over the Ammonites, then they, the Gileadites, would make him their leader. And so they, they accepted those terms. Well, Jephthah took charge, and in Judges 11 and verse 12, his first step, and one that I believe was quite admirable and, and shows great wisdom, was to reach out to the Ammonite king and try to solve the problem by diplomatic means rather than military means. He tried to negotiate a peaceful end to the conflict. He asked the Ammonites why they had declared war on Israel. And the king of Ammon makes it clear in verse 13 there of Judges 11 that the reason they had attacked them was because they felt that Israel, as they had come up from the land of Egypt uh, on their exodus from Egypt, that they had wrongfully taken land from his people, the Ammonites. And he makes an ultimatum, basically, that nothing short of restoring these disputed lands peaceably would stop the war. Well, Jephthah responds in verses 14 through 27 there of Judges 11 with a, a masterful four-point defense of Israel's right to these lands. It's a defense that I think is, is worthy of any dream team lawyer, we might say. And so tonight, for a little while, we want to take a closer look at that defense. Well, Jephthah's first point um, was simply to argue that Israel had not taken these disputed lands away from the Ammonites. They had, in fact, defeated the Amorites, which was a different group of people. They had taken these lands away from them, not from the Ammonites, who did not originally own these lands. And that point is elaborated by Jephthah in verses 14 through 22 of Judges 11. So if you have your Bibles and like to read along, Judges, read along in Judges 11, begin with verse 14. The Bible says, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, 
Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. Now, you and I probably don't recognize all the uh, geography uh, landmarks here, but that's exactly the land that, that the Ammonites were arguing belonged to them. And so, basically... Jephthah is saying, this wasn't your land to begin with. We took this land from, from the Amorites, not from you, the, the Ammonites. This is a very important point here, not only uh, in Jephthah's defense, but it's important to, to us as well. A lot of what Jephthah says here is quoted, and much of it verbatim, from what was written by Moses, specifically in the book of Numbers. This established every word of what Jephthah stated here, as absolutely accurate. And so he used God's word, if you will, to back up his claims. Well, certainly you can see how that is important to us today. We too need to use God's word to, to back up our claims. But there's another reason why this is important to us today, because it establishes the timeline of when a very important part of the New Testament was written. You see, there are some critics, some Bible critics, who claim that the Pentateuch, which is uh, the name given to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these critics claim that those five books did not even exist until the times of Josiah. Now, you may or may not remember the story of Josiah. Uh, his story is found in 2 Kings, uh, particularly chapter 22, but Josiah was the 16th king of Judah. He became king at the young age of eight years old after his father was assassinated. And Josiah was one of the few good kings of Judah. We know that Judah had many evil kings, as did Israel. But 2 Kings 22 and verse 2 says of Josiah that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And in that same chapter, we read the story of how King Josiah sent an official uh, to the house of the Lord to see the high priest, uh, particularly to ask about some of the funds that had been collected there for those who were taking care of um, the temple, I believe. But when he got there, the high priest informed him that they had found a book. They had found the book of the law. Apparently it had been 
uh, missing or misplaced. And uh, that's pretty apparent when you notice the ways that they had been disobeying disobeying the law. Apparently, they did not know what the law said. But anyway, this book was found. And so it was brought back to King Josiah, and it was read to him. And the Bible says that he tore his clothes in, in mourning or in um, sadness, and he said to his officials, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. Listen, he said, For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Again, it was obvious to Josiah that if this truly was the book of the law, if this truly was a law, God's law handed down to them, they had not been following it. And so once the book was confirmed to be authentic, Josiah went about enacting some, some drastic reforms throughout Judah to try to bring them back in line with God's law. And you can read about some of the things that he did, uh, truly remarkable reforms that he enacted. Well, to, long, to make a long story short, because of the timing of these reforms, history can show us, uh, it can be historically verified, the timing of, of all of Josiah's reforms to bring the people back into line with God's law. But some critics have claimed that the law was actually written at that time, originated at that time during Josiah's reign. But going back to Jephthah's argument in our text, again, he quotes directly from Moses' writings in the book of Numbers. And so that proves that Numbers, at least, and, and all of Moses' writings had existed many years before the book of Judges. Well, the summary of, of Jephthah's argument here is simply, as we said, that Israel had not taken the land away from the Ammonites at all. They had defeated and they had displaced or uh, moved the Amorites who were the original inhabitants of the land. And this is a perfectly true, perfectly reasonable argument. Well, next in verses 23 and 24, Jephthah presents his second point which was simply that since the God of Israel, the true God, the ruler of all lands, had given this land in question to Israel, then the Israelites certainly therefore had the right to keep it. It had been given to them by God. He says in verses 23 and 24, So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. The argument here is simply that, that since the Ammonites would not hesitate to, to take whatever they claimed was given to them by their God, Chemosh, their false God, if, if they wouldn't hesitate to, to take and to keep what their God had given them, then why should Israel hesitate to keep and to take what the God of Israel, the true God, as he said, had given uh, them? In fact, um, it should be clear to the Ammonites that, that they should consent, if you will, that whatever Jehovah, the God of Israel, had given them should belong to them. Now, I don't think we need to, or I, I know that we should not misread 
um, Jephthah's intent here or his, um, his meaning. Jephthah is not recognizing nor acknowledging the reality of this false god, Chemosh. Even though he mentions Chemosh uh, by name, he's not saying that he believes there is such a, a god. It was just an argument from, from the standpoint or the viewpoint of what the Ammonites believe. He's basically, basically saying, if you believe this, then why would you say that, that we are wrong? If you believe your God gives you things that you can keep, why would you say that, that the things that our God gives us uh, should not be kept uh, as well? Again, he's not admitting that there was such a God as Chemosh. In fact, because he was so familiar with the book of Numbers, which we've already mentioned, he quoted almost verbatim, then he certainly knew and certainly believed that there is one and only one true God. But I think it uses or shows great wisdom here that he would even argue from, from their own viewpoint. Well, thirdly, in verse 25, Jephthah offers his third point. He says, Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? This is basically a political argument. And it's founded upon the fact that Moab, who had once claimed some of this disputed territory, but had lost it when, when Sihon, the king of the uh, Amorites, had, had, forcibly, um, had forced Moab out, if you will, and occupied that land that they once had. Jephthah's pointing out that, that after, Israel and, and after Israel defeated Sihon and, and, and pushed him out, and occupied that land that, that not even Moab, who had once owned it, had ever disputed Israel's right to possess it. Basically, Moab owned it, Israel pushed them out, and Moab gave in and, and never claimed uh, to own it back. And that doesn't mean that they were happy about it. In fact, we can read of uh, the king of Moab, I've forgotten his name at the moment, but uh, we can see read about his uh, displeasure with Israel. But, again, they never attacked or they never tried to give it back. They admitted that it was, in fact, did in fact belong to Israel. And so if that's true, that even Moab, who owned the land, had never argued, then who was this king of Ammon that he should lay any claim to this territory? And then finally, Jephthah's fourth and final point is basically what we might call today the, the statute of limitations. He says in verse 26, While Israel lived in Heshbon, and its villages, and in Aroer and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? He said, we've been living here, the people of Israel have been living here for 300 years. If you thought this was your land, why didn't you come and attack and try to take it back during all this time? Israel had been in possession of, of Gilead ever since the days of of Moses. And logically and legally speaking, it was too late for Ammon to make any kind of claim now since Israel had enjoyed such a long period of, of really undisputed uh, occupation and ownership of, of that territory. Well, Jephthah closes out his defense in a pretty dramatic climax in verse 27. He says, I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, 
decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. As we said, Jephthah's arguments have been both logical and legal. And he had even attempted more or less a handshake across the aisle, so to speak, by appealing to, to Ammon's own religious beliefs. But now he offers what we might call a, a countersuit. Um, not only had Israel not sinned against Ammon, but it was Ammon who was doing wrong by making war with Israel. And Jephthah calls on his God, who he calls the judge, to decide between the two parties. Well, sadly, even though Jephthah had made such a uh, great and, and logical, as we said, argument, verse 28 tells us that the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah. And as we studied last time, God granted Jephthah and his army a crushing defeat of the Ammonites. And so one lesson that I would like for us to take away from this study is that like Jephthah, we need to be ready, we need to be willing to defend God's kingdom, the church, against attacks by the enemy. Now that's not to say that we need to, to practice our debating skills. Um, to be honest with you, I, I was never on the debate team, and so I don't know necessarily the different types of arguments and, and debate, debating skills that might exist, but I have a suspicion that, that many of those were used by Jephthah here. As I said, we don't have to um, practice our debating skills, and um, we don't have to be able to make arguments maybe as skillfully as Jephthah did, but it is important to us that we stand up for the truth, and that requires a knowledge of the truth, of God's Word. As we've noticed, as we've seen, Jephthah clearly had a knowledge of the writings of Moses, and he used those writings uh, in his defense. And so we too need to have a knowledge of God's Word to be able to defend it. And it also requires a willingness on our part to present God's Word to others, to never be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 16. Well, before we close our, our study tonight, I want to mention something that perhaps is not directly related to our study tonight, but with all this discussion of land claims, and particularly among uh, the nation of Israel and its neighbors, I suspect that some of the current events of today have, have come to your mind, um, current events over the last week or so. And I want to speak just quickly about what our reaction uh, as Christians should be toward these events. If you're not aware, um, in the last weekend, the nation of Israel was attacked uh, brutally by members of the Islamic militant group known as Hamas. And consequently, Israel has begun counterattacks. And so this war, uh, where many lives have been and, and will be, I'm afraid, lost, uh, has begun. In fact, that war has been going on for years. But, but because of this latest attack, you may have seen some social media posts by some of our denominational friends that call for Christians specifically to pray for Israel. And I, I just wanted to say that, first of all, they are correct in their desire to pray for Israel. But our need to pray for Israel is probably not 
for the reasons that many of them claim or believe. In fact, I'm going to say something here that may be quite shocking to, to some of them, but we as Christians need to pray not only for Israel, but we need to pray for those Islamic countries as well, such as Iran and others that, that side with the Hamas, just as much as we need to pray for Israel. As I said, that may come as a shock, but the fact is that the reason that Israel needs our prayers is the same reason that those Islamic nations do. The reason they need our prayers is because both of them, both sides, have rejected Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And we should pray that they would come to a knowledge and a faith in Him as their Savior, just like all nations and all religions. And of course, we should pray that, that peace might abound and, and pray for the victims of this war on both sides uh, of the war. But when our denominational friends say, pray for Israel, what many of them have in mind is, is more than that. Because they believe that Israel, as a nation, still has a special relationship with God. In fact, they believe that Jesus someday plans to return to this earth, specifically to Jerusalem or to Israel, and establish an earthly kingdom and rule over it for a thousand years. Millennialism, as it's uh, sometimes called. And as such, they believe that we as Christians need to pray for Israel and pray for her safety so that these events can take place, so that Christ can return and, and make Israel uh, the site of, of this new kingdom, earthly kingdom. Well, first of all, the very thought that God needs us to pray so that His plans can come to fruition is really silly. If Jesus did, if, if Jesus did plan to return to Israel, no nation or power would be able to stop him. They don't need our prayers to stop Jesus from doing what he plans to do. But the real mistake here, and the real important point here, is that the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, he already did that. Jesus came not to establish an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual one. And that kingdom is the church. And Jesus now reigns, now as the king of that kingdom. And he invites us all, Americans, Israelis, Arabs. He invites us all to be members of that kingdom. Spiritual Israel, uh, as we sometimes call it. When Jesus does return, and he will return, it will not be to establish a kingdom in Israel or anywhere else. It will be to gather his kingdom and to pronounce judgment on all men. And so I just wanted to make that clear. As I said, sometimes it gets confusing when we see uh, some of our denominational brethren pray for it, say to pray for Israel, and, and maybe we aren't exactly sure how to respond to that. We should pray for Israel, but we should pray for, for all men as well to come to a knowledge and obedience of the truth. Well, perhaps you're here this evening and you're not a citizen of, of Christ's kingdom. If that's the case, then we encourage you to, to do something about that. The Bible teaches that we must believe, we must repent of our sins, we must confess our faith in Christ as the Son of God, and we must be baptized for the remission of our sins. And that will add us to the kingdom, and we can begin serving 
Jesus, our King, faithfully for the rest of our lives. Or if you've once taken those steps, but you have strayed away from the kingdom, then renew your loyalty to Jesus through repentance and confession and prayer. And if we can assist you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.